This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an innovative, interactive game designer, non-traditional storyteller, and wildly ambitious director and writer with four BAFTA awards to his name. His critically acclaimed video games, Immortality, Her Story, and Telling Lies are hybrids of gaming, movies, and nonlinear storytelling. Coming up is clever mystery maker, diabolical director, and founder of Half Mermaid, Sam Barlow. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hello. That was a good intro. That was a fun intro. Oh, thank you. Well, here's the thing about being a nonlinear storyteller. I feel like we should start off with your answer instead of me asking you some question. Don't worry, you're going to see I will I will jump around. That's just going to happen. To give the listener context, many of these games that you develop, which are very clever, are things that have to unfold with very little clues, just sort of figuring it out, going through police files, watching video clips. So I guess I would start out, what drew you to game mechanics? If it was at all conscious, I'm probably of the generation that has spent most of their lives with computers and with games, right? I'm not, I think there's a generation that comes after me that's like, oh, this was like our bread and butter. But in elementary school, we had a computer in the school. It sat in a corner that was very mysterious and kind of cool. And then at some point we got a home computer. And, and you know, that first wave of hobbyist home computers, you couldn't just plug in a game and play it like you can now. You'd have to type stuff in from magazines. And so you were naturally pulled into the guts of the thing. And so I was doing that stuff before I was writing my terrible short stories and my teenage novel. <laughs> it's always been a thing I've been doing and just part of my consumption of media and part of how I think was always there as this kind of background thing. And, and so when I was at college, I kind of discovered on the early internet this scene that were people who had grown up playing kind of old-fashioned text adventures and now were kind of meeting each other online and there were tools that were being made available that allowed you to go and make things in the style of those older games. But because it was lots of young, ambitious people full of all that creative energy, there was a real sense of like, let's take that format and, and make something more worthy. Like, let's push the what is possible within this medium. So there was a lot of interesting artistic work being done there and then almost accidentally got a job in a video game developer, a kind of larger studio 
where I was working on lots of stuff that was not as ambitious artistically. Lots of kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're going to make the, the game for the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider movie. Sure, brand, a branded game playing, essentially trying to exploit an existing thing. At that time, that was people's root in. It was like the equivalent of like Roger Corman for film directors back in the day. It was like, you come in, you make these cheap things and you might learn some craft and you might occasionally get to, to kind of do some cool things. And it was only really during that process, I got a chance to work on the Silent Hill franchise, which this was like the early 2000s. At that time, if you wanted to make a larger budget video game and wanted to aspire to certain psychological depth of characters playing around with storytelling structure, if you wanted to kind of have that fun, there were very few places you could do that. And, and this particular franchise, which was kind of known as being the peak of survival horror, psychological horror, you know, this was, mm -hmm. this was a video game that was borrowing from Jacob's Ladder and from all sorts of surrealism and was doing kind of interesting things. You know, I got a chance to work on that franchise and that was really the point where I was able to step back and say, oh, hang on a minute, this thing I'm now doing as my day job is the thing I've always wanted to do, not necessarily verbalized it or had an understanding of that, but hey, here I am telling stories with these pieces of technology that feel very exciting to me. I think that's then subsequently become even more so in, in terms of justifying continuing to do it, looking around and saying, well, this is the world we live in. This is how people use technology. This is how we go about learning about the world, talking to each other. You know, it's all so integrated now with this technology that there must be interesting ways to use that to tell a classical story. So you were writing or directing on these Silent Hill games that were on PlayStation, and then you broke away. And I guess what I see that's so amazing to me is how ambitiously you've taken all of your interests, your love of film and the gaming, the puzzling aspect of it, and the storytelling, which it's ambitious on every level. And the most recent, Immortality, for those who don't know that are listening, it's this unbelievable project where the game is centered around, oh, and the movie, because it's a movie game, the central actress who goes missing, and she has made three films in her career, and you subsequently had to make each of those movies, or what appears to have made these full movies, in order for us to scrub through the clips and find the clues and put the story together. And I looked at it as a producer and thought, okay, the logistics of making all of these elements and the pieces that we have to look to, and especially the way you did it, where you're match cutting between scenes and props and characters, I thought, well, this person is a lunatic, the guy who made this. Because when you set out to not only give yourself a job, but a career and a project that probably for all of your partners, they have to be just about as nuts as you to look at a pre-production schedule because I saw in the documentary about it that it initially was a 406-page script for the game and then subsequently the three screenplays. And even in watching what I was watching, it looked like it was the making of those three screenplays because we're seeing the characters behind the scenes as part of our clues. So I don't know if I'm summing this up, accurately that's that's a pretty good it's a pretty good summary yeah you're like the kid who decided that 
one book report's not enough. Like I want to turn in the definitive documentary on all literature at the same time. Yeah, to be honest, that was almost a stated goal <laughs> of the project was was to be too ambitious. And like part of why, as you say, back in like 2014, I went independent and started finding ways to make these projects slightly outside of the, the normal way of doing things. And, and some of that came from a frustration, how slowly things necessarily have to move in the more mainstream video game space. Because right now, if you're making a moderate to big size budget video game, that's five years to make that thing. And the people who are funding it, that you're having to pitch on it, they want you to point to the previously successful game mm. that proves this is a worthwhile thing. So you're looking at the game that was started five years prior to that. So you're kind of talking about an evolution that isn't, you're not really doing much across the span of say 10 years. And you're wrestling with technology. And so there's all sorts of forces of conservatism that are, are kind of holding things back. So it, when I look at video games, and all the possibilities, there is a part of me that, that just wants to see more people taking wild swings. And if I think of, say, movies, like the directors, you know, when I grew up as a teenager in England, and I was really, really obsessed with film. And, you know, I was surrounded by uh, it was people like Ken Russell, Nick Rowe, Peter Greenaway, these directors that were just making these things where there was a fine line between being indulgent <laughs> and being ambitious. If people were going to critique a Ken Russell movie, it was like, this is so uh, <laughs> this is so much. It is too much. But at the same time, like, and there's just so little of that in games because there's so many forces, right? It's like every game is almost like a Marvel movie just because of the complexity and scale of it. So with Immortality, as I started to round in on what the concept was, I was like, is this too ambitious? And he was like, yes, let's, that's the thing. Like, let's be indulgent. There's a kind of trust that if I'm crazy for this thing, if, if this is blowing my mind, there's a chance on the other end, someone else will have a similar kind of relationship to it. Certainly the point where I first brought a line producer in, there was a lot of talking them off the ceiling. <laughs> this is how I think we can pull this off. This is how this is going to work. If I think of the things that I love and, and other people have created, it's always there's, there's kind of three modes. There's people starting out and they don't know the constraints. And so they create something ridiculous, which you know is always the, the rationale behind, say, Citizen Kane. David Lynch is always a fun touchstone because I feel like he's done all of these modes. So something like a razor head mm -hmm. is David Lynch not knowing how you're <laughs> supposed to go and make a movie. And so he makes this ridiculous thing. And then I think there's when you have successful artists who then hit a slump, you know, they have a huge flop. And so they built up all of the craft and the skill and then suddenly they find themselves in a position where they're kind of back to the start again and then you see people now fearlessly creating something that is also again kind of ambitious and wild because they've been freed from the, the mounting constraints they might have had i think for me we go back to david lynch you go well inland empire is this movie he made where you know he had had his heights he had done twin peaks and then he had a couple of flops and there he is running around with a kind of consumer camcorder making this movie where again he's he's kind of getting back in touch with some of that kind of early spirit but he has all of the craft and skill he's built over the years and then i think like the third category is and this happens very rarely successful beautiful artist somehow gets given all the money in the world <laughs> and they just go for right. it right and i think with lynch like you kind of have that with twin peaks season three where it's like okay you're gonna give me x million dollars per episode 
I'm going to do all this, this shit that's going to, it's going to annoy people and this is going to be weird. And this is, I'm going to write a scene in which me, David Lynch, playing the character, dreams about Monica Bellucci. And to shoot that, we're going to fly to Paris and I'm going to have dinner with Monica Bellucci, right? Like that's so indulgent. But there's no one there saying, you can't do this, David. So certainly like immortality was, I don't know where it sits on that spectrum, but it was me trying to get in that mindset of, why not make a video game about the history of cinema? Why not make a video game that is trying to answer my own questions around like, what is the point of this? Or why do we tell stories? Like how much is this tied up in, in our human biology as well? Coming from video games, it's weird to be, be conscious of being in the early stages of a medium, right? So oftentimes if people making video games are asked to justify what they're doing, they'll say, well, look, this is early days. We're still in the kind of silent movie era of video games. We have so much to learn about this medium. But it's weird to be saying that, essentially owning the fact that a lot of what you're creating will disappear and be unplayable. Mm. And it's literally true in video games because the technology is moving so fast. Uh, you know, that Silent Hill game I made has a, a kind of cult following, is essentially unplayable now. To, to play it, you need to go find an old piece of gaming hardware mm-hmm. and you need to find someone that's going to sell you an old disc of it. And, and even if you do all of that and sit down to play it, you can't play it in the same way because the faces don't look like real human faces. In 2009, you'd have looked at them and gone, wow, this looks like a real human. Right, on this right. Now you look at it and you're like, that period of, of CGI movie making that has aged so badly versus practical effects because there was a novelist I worked with on a previous game and we would have very navel-gazing self-indulgent conversations of Ram. If he goes off and writes a novel, he obviously has a, a huge degree of expression there and yes, he has an editor and, and everything else, but it's very direct as a, as a way of him expressing himself and that means that when people go and read his book, they have this very direct connection to him, um, but he's not selling many copies of those books. Whereas we were working on a bigger franchise video game at the time, and it was like we were painfully aware of the compromises we were making to put things in, we were requested, tweak things. But we also knew, should this video game have come out, and it didn't, but if it had, then we would have had an audience of millions with that level of attention. Also, his book, The Apocalypse Could Happen, someone could find a copy of his book in a pile, and that connection is still there, whereas these games can, they have a shelf life. Here's what's interesting about Immortality. We mentioned that there were three screenplays. Those had to be written. You have collaborators along the way. You have a big picture design, but now the same way. You need partners that are not gamers, but that are movie writers so that these are real movies because the conceit of this is that she made these three movies, but they were never released. Yeah. And she vanishes, and now we're looking through the archives of it, and we're essentially, between being a detective and an editor, we're going, feeling like we're in an old movieola editing, rewinding and finding and moving in and searching, as if we have to somehow put the story together using the many stories that she made as an actress. How big is was your staff uh, outside of the acting, which, you know, has a certain number of characters. But how big was the staff in terms of creating the rest of the elements? And did you have three people writing the three movies with you? Or, like, how did that play out? On the actual, like, game development side, it was a very small team, which is, is a really fun place to be. You know, the movie shoot itself was essentially three small indie movies scale. So then the writing of it 
was kind of fun because initially it, it's basically me and then my team here laying this thing out and riffing on it. So it was, we had the idea of this is the story of Marissa Marcel and we're going to glimpse that story through the window of these three movies. So any of her story that happens outside of the shooting periods and prep periods for these movies, we won't see. That'll all be alluded to. But So we're going to have these three movies and then there's a little bit of juggling around when are these movies taking place what genres are they and and it was very appealing to me to to pick movies so we see the first movies it's like late period hitchcock it's like the last gasps of the studio system where you have an artist who is is now in a, working in a way that's slightly awkward as as the times are changing and then we jump to the middle movie is basically new hollywood 70s what a lot of people will think of as being like the golden age of, of movies now in retrospect and then we jump for the third movie to the end of the 90s where you have this kind of millennial new wave of indie directors at the end of the 90s were also obsessed with the 70s they were all looking back and quoting you had all the neo-noirs and things so we kind of had that sketched out and put some flesh on the bones in terms of this first movie is going to be a costume drama it's going to be an adaptation of this 18th century book and you know the the director is this kind of somewhere between Otto Preminger and Alfred Hitchcock guy oh second movie is going to be a proto-erotic thriller set in New York and and the director is much more in the that new Hollywood 70s type so we, we kind of had the things laid out and started to structure things so we got it to the point where we had like a beat list for the movies because what I'm doing at this point is looking at the story we want to tell about Marissa and then trying to synchronize these movies right so oh if, if this event's happening in the movie that's a good point for this thing to be happening to Marissa in her life right these are the journeys we're talking about. so we kind of have we are juggling basically an outline because you needed the overlay of these movies to be able to intercut between at times yeah right? like they have to spark yeah. off each other and there's this kind of this story so the first movie is an adaptation of the monk which is this book that was written in the 18th century by this 22 year old english guy mg lewis who, who didn't really write much else it was a huge scandal at the time because you read it now like you go back and read this book and it's actually very readable for a book that was written that long ago and its politics and its especially its attitude to organized religion feels extremely modern. This guy's taking no prisoners in exposing the hypocrisy of organized religion. It's a real fun read because it's full of sex and violence. But in, in looking at this book from so long ago, I'm reading it and I'm like, this is a film noir. Like you, ba you, you literally have a femme fatale. You have the male in the authority figure. So instead of a cop, he is a monk. And... It is the story of, as, as so many of my favorite film noir stories are, he's pathetic. Every point, if he's given the option to not suck, he's like, oh, well, I, I can't say no, I'm going to go and suck. <laughs> and you see basically across the course of this book, he is slowly destroyed and encouraged to commit more and more heinous crimes. And at the end of it, he is, is just a husk of a man. And I was like, this is a lot of hard-boiled noir. And I became really interested as well because we we're talking about this lead character, uh, who is an actress and if you're talking about 20th century being a woman in the 20th century there is a lot happening right and there are shifts in the hierarchy and obviously even uh, in our current century we're continuing to interrogate especially in the film industry how things work and I was really interested in looking at older movies and thinking about the idea of being a star because a lot of the story was well 
being a, an actress or a star is this extreme version of why do we tell stories? Because you are literally committing your life to film and living on as this crystallized, captured version of yourself. And, and you will continue to live on after your death, even, even literally now with all this AI nonsense. That's true. You know what? People have Facebook pages that have passed away and I get messages from them. It's pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of creepy stuff now at technology. But looking at these older movies and thinking about noir and the femme fatale trope, it was interesting to me that kind of early Hollywood, you would have these female stars who are playing a femme fatale role. And to watch those movies now, you're like, oh, wow, this character has in the story the most agency, the most sexual agency, like is the mover, is the prime mover of all the plot. They survive, they win. So it's actually like a really powerful role. On the other hand, it is a trope purely there to titillate and, and terrify straight men, right? So I was like, well, okay, this, this is an interesting starting point. And seeing it reflected in this 18th century novel is, was interesting to me. So then with the second movie, we iterate and we're like, well, the idea most people have of what makes those 70s movies interesting is they have a complexity and an ambiguity that we, we don't necessarily have in the, the bigger movies now. So, you know, if you watch to Clue or this isn't quite 70s, but I keep pulling it in, like something like Cruising, the end of Cruising, director is explicitly creating contradictory information. So you can't solve the crime. And you end on like Al Pacino looking in the mirror and you have no, what am I supposed to be thinking here? Is Al Pacino actually a murderer? Has he realized he's gay? Like there's all these weird, naughty things going on. So we were like, okay, let's take the, the model of the femme fatale from the monk and see what a, a 70s spin on that is. So I wanted to write an erotic thriller. I watched every erotic thriller that existed and this is great nothing more exciting during an erotic thriller than a siren passing by <laughs> it's kind of interactive so it's the new york text yeah for me i was like very it's very easy for me to say there are bad erotic thrillers and there are good ones and for me the ones that don't work are the ones where the twist or the reveal is that the object of desire is not the killer because i feel like there's a false setup there because all of the sexual tension in these movies comes from like it's very sexy to have this person that might kill me, right? And, and and all that Freudian stuff. Kind of a Black Widow. Yeah. Sea of Love was one that I found very interesting because it's an erotic thriller about the least erotic things going on. It's, it's about being single in New York in the early 80s. And the two main characters are almost aging out of the dating pool. So there's lots of very unsexy awkwardness. But the, the twist of that movie at the end, it's not the beautiful woman that has been murdering everyone. Um, it's actually her uh, abusive ex. And so you're like, well, actually, this is a very truthful and authentic take, you know, spin on this genre to say, actually, it's not all fantasy and silliness. Actually, most of the people doing the killing are the, the bad dudes. But as, as an erotic thriller, it kind of lets all the air out of the tires when you have it. We're going to do one where the killer is the beautiful woman, but let's imagine she's co-writing it and she wants to bring some authenticity to it. So like, how do you write an erotic thriller where the killer is sympathetic and we're playing with that? And I was very drawn to the story by Francois Gillot was one of Picasso's muses. She was one of, mm. she's known as the one that survived, which is pretty grim. Right? She was the one to step out of that situation with most of her mental health intact and still alive. So it becomes, can we find a, a murder where we, agree with the murdering a little bit and, and nuance to it. Yeah, no, that makes sense, right? Uh, the muse that has to somewhat escape the the draw of being 
sucked into that world of intrigue and the artist and all that business. Yeah, and it and you know and it obviously then you know has it sparks off of this idea throughout then the three movies of her being an actress and being a muse to the various directors. Um, and then the third movie, we essentially go, well, what's a '90s neo noir twist on this? And so now actually that character we've carried through becomes simultaneously a victim and a revenger. And we set up that the kind of systemic forces are of money and power are extremely evil. Um, and there was, as we were writing it, I think a lot of the Epstein stuff was kind of coming out and we were accidentally <laughs> digging into that. You know, had that all laid out of like, this is the story you want to tell. And then during the course of this, we had been reaching out as part of our research process to speak to people from these different eras. Tell us in your own words what it was like working with these directors, what was the POV on the ground on the gender politics of the time and stuff. And so some of those conversations have been very fruitful. And as well, there's like a thing I've tried to do on the previous games is, you know, if the experience for the player is something of a found experience, so it should feel like found footage or found objects, you know, feel like this was a real thing you chanced across. So it's not orientated explicitly for you it feels like something that's interesting to dig into it became apparent that like well the coolest thing we could do here is as part of the process to make these movies feel like found objects to us so then the task became can we find the brief was find some writers who wrote some of the best movies of these eras like who actually wrote the movies that we're referencing to come in and, and just write these screenplays for us. So that conversation was very funny because I think most amusingly, because the, the initial question was, who is still alive that, that right. from these Gotta eras? start there. <laughs> Are they still writing? And then will they even talk to us, these weird video games people? And one of the people that was on our list uh, was Alan Scott. It was one of the writers on Don't Look Now, which is kind of a, a top 10 movie for me. And I, as part of that like initial research, my producer came back and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're still working, they're still writing, and looks like the the last thing they worked on was a show about chess for Netflix that's coming out soon. Oh, right, The Queen's Gambit, right? We were like, oh, a show about chess. They sound like they'd be quite happy to work with us. Doesn't sound like they're working on anything <laughs> too exciting. And then I think during the early stages, Queen's Gambit came out and was the biggest show on TV or whatever, and we were like, oh, okay. Yeah, the show about chess is a big deal. There's an interesting parallel, though, because that... The actress that played that role has a, a quality that your actress has in immortality. Yeah, they both have like a, a a look to them that has kind of an edge to it, which makes them feel you can place them in an earlier era and it kind of feels like they sit there. That just occurred to me as you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, but the, the funny thing with those conversations initially was reaching out and being like, hey, do you want to come and write on this video game thing we're doing? And And a lot of people were like, yeah, that sounds like a really fun thing i want to you know get down with the kids and do something a bit different it'd be really cool to write for a video game and then we had to quickly stop them and be like actually forget we said video game we want a hundred page screenplay that is a screenplay that works as a screenplay you don't need to worry about this being a video game they're like oh so i'm not going to get to write motion capture pew pew scenes or anything it's like no right <laughs> right so that was a fun part of the experience for us was to to have you know we basically give them the outline and then be like, go write this thing, come back. And if it's too off-piste, we can rein you back in, but kind of have some fun with it. You've shared so much that my mind is racing. Number one, do you think the author of the book, The Monk, has any idea 
that he's also involved in the making of this video game from the 18th century. There's a bit in the game where when they wrap the movie of the monk in 1968 in our fiction, the lead actor is, the, the cast party is thanking everybody. And he has a little bit where he says, thank you, M.G. Lewis. We hope you're happy with what we did with your story, whether you're up there or down there. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's a nice nod. He's definitely down there, I think. <laughs> well, the other thing that's amazing about all of it is that you're now talking about the different eras, and even within the eras, you're talking about making a film in 1968 about a movie from way earlier. There's an awful gauzy flow between all of these times and zones. Yeah. The thing that was fascinating with that and, and why we went in that direction with the first movie was... In theory, a historical drama would age the least, right? If theoretically, when you made a movie set, say 17th century, if, if everybody's accurately representing the 17th century, all of the movies would look indistinguishable. But the movies that date the most, it, it's a combination between it's either historical dramas or sci-fi. And, and it's the same thing, right? Like you watch Star Wars now and everyone's walking around with porn mustaches and, and you're like, oh, this very specifically came from this point in the 70s. <laughs> similarly, with costume drama, even though everybody's trying to evoke exactly the same historical period, the haircuts, you watch like the 60s Romeo and Juliet, you're like, oh, I know exactly where we are. Now. Yeah. Like I say, just the layers of going here in 2020, whatever, we are now making a thing about some people in 1968 in, and then funnily enough, they're, they're shooting in Italy, making a film that's set in the 17th century in Spain that was written by an Englishman who had probably never been there in 18th century England. And like one of the fun things we had when the thing was localized and we're sending it to the Spanish translators. And we're like, so here's a thing. This story is set in Madrid, but it was written by an English guy who gave everybody Italian names. And there's all these things that will probably sound really weird to a Spanish audience. Like, should we try and fix that or do we own that? And I think that was fun. But every part of it, costumes, lighting, texture, lens, everything that you do, you were trying to honor the eras of those things while building a jigsaw puzzle made of a web of lies where you're exploiting our love of diving down rabbit holes because you are thinking about the consumer. I mean, you're thinking about the player, the participant. They're in the story as the detective or the editor as we said you have a very unique immersive experience that you're obligated to do as a gaming designer when i started making these things one of the huge motivators i had was the game i mentioned earlier that was cancelled like that I, I spent three years on this bigger franchise game and so there was a lot more interactions with higher-ups there and they would all have opinions on how a video game should work and a lot of those opinions were maybe this is a similar experience if you're writing a Marvel movie, I don't know, it would be to not assume too much of the audience, to make everything clear. I was often told, could you have the character say the subtext out loud? And I'd be like, that's, that's bad writing. And they'd be like, yeah, but we don't want the player to be confused or lost. And I felt very strongly was if you're in an interactive thing, if you are directly interacting, I actually think you, you can ask more and you should ask more of the audience because all the cool stuff is happening in their brain. And so part of the process of telling these stories is what stuff will we never put on screen? What stuff is always going to be suggested or hinted at 
because then the player is conjuring it up and they own it and it becomes that much more kind of interesting. This is true of all storytelling, you know, whether you're reading between the lines in a book or what is happening between cuts in a movie, what dramatic irony are you playing with, what stuff are you setting up that you're going to pay off later. Like it's all part and parcel of it. And I would always reference Hitchcock in particular as why was Hitchcock so good as a cinematic storyteller? And for me, his whole method was to him, the story was not the plot. It was not the things the characters were saying. It wasn't even like what the characters are doing on screen. It is what is happening in the audience's brain, which was his whole methodology of suspense. I'm going to give you bits of information that are going to start you thinking about stuff and you're going to be anticipating, predicting the gap between what you're expecting and what happens or the surprises, the payoffs. That's where the really kind of fun experience happens. Layers of guilt and deeper psychological shit that's going on in a lot of that suspense storytelling. It's not necessarily his best movie, but The Birds is a really great example of of just the extent to which he is, as he would say, playing the audience like a piano. And and what also fascinated with Hitchcock is the thing you do as a writer where you write a, a, a traditional three-act movie and you're like, oh, this twist at the end of the first act that sets everything in motion so beautiful oh i've set it up so that 20 minutes in everyone's mind's going to be blown and you lie to yourself because the reality is that's going to be in the trailer and that's going to be in the marketing pitch so you're never going to have this perfect piece of writing you've done where you have this reveal is never going to happen a great example of this is terminator 2 where the whole rationale of that movie for james cameron was bringing arnold schwarzenegger back and people would assume he was the bad guy. And he sets it up. So it's, I don't know if it's like 10, 20 minutes into the movie. He twists it and shows you that Arnie is a good guy. And the whole opening of that movie is beautifully, artfully constructed to conceal and never contradict the assumption that Arnie's the bad guy. You can see James Cameron sat there like, oh, I'm so clever. This is going to be so beautiful. When this happens in the theaters, people's minds will be blown. And then the distributors came in And they were like, Arnie's a huge star. This whole movie, the cool thing about this movie is you have Arnie as a good killer robot. We have to put that in the trailer, dude. We have to sell the audience what they're getting. This has to be in the trailer. And he lost that fight. But with Hitchcock, he was so involved in every aspect, right? He would play the marketing off against the movie as well. So like with the birds, a lot of the trailers for the birds didn't even show the movie. They were just Hitchcock walking around, you know, doing his spiel. So he sets it up, right? Here's this movie about people being attacked by birds. If you, if you go and pay your, your ticket, you're paying to come in and sit and watch people be attacked by birds. And that sounds very exciting and dramatic and terrifying. And that movie, he waits an excruciating amount of time before anyone is attacked by a bird. And he has birds on the periphery. And what he does, which I made the mistake once of relating this to a producer and saying, this is what I'm trying to do, and, and terrifying them. But he gives you a character in that movie who is unlikable. When you first meet Tippi Hedron's character, she is rich and arrogant and self-possessed, and she's rude to the people in the, the, the shop she goes to. You know, she's not evil, right? She's not murdering babies, but she is annoying, and he sets the audience up so you kind of, you don't want to kill this woman, but uh, it's something that you just want to wipe the smile off her face is the kind of vibe he sets up. And so you're following her. And so 
simultaneously, there is this mounting frustration of like, just when are the birds going to start killing people? I want to see the birds attacking people already. And that is, is simultaneously happening with, oh, I can't wait till the birds attack and then this woman will be kind of knocked out of her smug little rich person bubble. And then what he does is, and it goes on and on and on, X minutes into this movie, Tippi Hedron's crossing a lake on a little boat and a single seagull swoops down and attacks her. And all it does is it like cuts the top of her forehead and it messes up her perfect hair. And she looks terrified. And there's something about like the intimacy of this little wound, how upset she is. Where she is in the middle of the lake. Yeah. You suddenly feel bad. Like guilty that you've been like, come attack her with a bird, attack her with a bird, attack her with a bird. And it happens, then you're like, oh God, no, not like that. This isn't the fun spectacle I wanted. And now like you're so caught up and all the weird human psychology is now there for, for Hitchcock to play with. So, you know, that is something 100%. And they make very different video games to me, but I will always look to what Nintendo is doing because they are another company and, and some of their creators, where everything they're doing is about understanding what the audience and the player is, is wanting, what they're desiring, how they're enacting that in the game, how you respond to that. Like it's very much, you're always thinking about what is the desired result on the other end, right? Mm -hmm. For me, the beauty of, of my games and something like Immortality is if you set like five people down, to play it and watch them all, you know, within five, 10 minutes, they're in completely different places. They have different ideas. They're, they're digging into different areas. They're bringing their own curiosity to the work in ways that sparks differently. And I think like that's such a good test for me of, should this thing even be interactive? Why are we not just printing this as a book or telling it as a story? You respecting the uniqueness of the person that sat at the front of the work. Right. So let me, I'm going to uh, jump back to a game from 2015, which was your, when you made her story. And I just had the experience the other night where I got to sit down by myself and get into this, which is a, it's done as a police procedural kind of case where to solve this murder, you're going through police interviews and clips. You're exploring essentially video to reassemble a story, but they're all from the point of view of what might've been a, a police interview station I didn't know the first thing about getting on. My son, Tucker, who's an editor and co-producer on this podcast, had been through it and said, oh, try this one. This would be a good way in. This is your door in. And I'm confessing here that I have not done a lot of these kinds of games. The last time that I really like let myself go deep was in the days of Mist and Riven, mm -hmm. which was much more puzzle-making. But it is the first time where I went, oh, I could do this for days. Like, I could play this for hours into the night. So I find myself jumping around, you know, with the freedom to look at the various facts. And I realized, first of all, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to figure out. So I begin to write things down. Like I'm looking at the time code. I'm looking at the, the date. I'm like, oh, maybe I need to put this all in order. And then I wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was very, very interesting how I went, even though there was a place to put notes, I felt like, oh, I want an analog experience, mm -hmm. which was to have my my pad. Now I'm going to be smarter than anybody else. Well, I know everybody else clicks a different character or a different idea. So there's probably no two people that have ever looked at this in the same order at all. But what is it about an interrogation room that is so intriguing to you from a, a sitting down standpoint? Because you do feel very voyeuristic. So that game came out of the shows I was obsessed with growing up. A lot of them, so shows like Homicide Life on the Street, there was a, a British show called Cracker. The best bits of those shows were when they went into the interrogation room. You see Andre Brower 
going toe to toe with the character actor of the week. You're like, oh, this is where the writers, they have no other tools. There's no set pieces. There's very, there's no props. Like nobody's even moving. Nobody's yeah. blocked. Like they got a big bright light on the person. Yeah. All that you can do as a writer is, is get to the purest essence of two characters interacting. And it, as a writer who obviously is interested in complexity and layers, like the classic detective story instantly is, is an interesting story because you, you buy into, there are going to be multiple periods of time probably the majority of the characters are explicitly lying either to a detective or to themselves in in the kind of agatha christie version there is almost an explicit call to the audience to solve this thing and then as, as the genre evolves that becomes less important over the years it's become more and more complicated to love cop shows as much and like on the second game telling lies i went really deep into the history of the fbi and then i'm like oh shit like <laughs> the fbi invented the idea of the cop show as a way of like whitewashing their public image and stuff but it's such a beautiful extreme version of storytelling because you have a character that's done something probably heinous right outside of the social order whether that's murdering someone or whatever and then you have another character who is in theory a force for good who is attempting to extract that i started out with the objective of like no one's really done a good police procedural detective game in video games like that is an unsolved puzzle and if i ever pitched it to to the money people they would always dismiss me and i'd be like hey look look at every other medium this stuff is evergreen if you have a tv channel you're going to have a cop show if you're a publisher yeah. you're going to have cop books like i'm not like pitching you art house here i'm pitching you something that can make you money and they'd always be like i just don't think it works in video games like it's so character driven and, and the few video games that have tried to do this have thrown in car chases and the shooty shooty bits and and lent into that because they feel comfortable there right but so for me it was kind of going well here's an opportunity to go to the other extreme of saying yeah this is just the the bit where the people are just sat in a room like can we make that interesting and so i gave myself a little bit of freedom of figuring out what that meant and some of that was was then kind of an intense period of research of doing all the training manuals and learning how to be a homicide detective and what their techniques are which is fascinating because as a storyteller as someone thinks about words reading about how they listen for the tense and the uses of certain pronouns as a tell like all this kind of stuff was fascinating and part of that was discovering the publicly available videos of real life interrogations and so i was very lucky in that this was 2000s, 2010s, just on the cusp of that, that kind of true crime explosion, right? Where serial yes. making a murderer was. And I think some of that came out of the ubiquity of video was just kicking in. So things like YouTube, where people started to upload these things. When I grew up, if you watch the news, if you watch the 10 o'clock news, reality was a film crew shooting on film, capturing an event, as or after it had happened. Mm. Whereas in the 2000s, reality on TV is is a cell phone camera. Yep, and there's 10 views, you're still confused. Yeah, so there was, there was like, oh, there's this texture. And so I started watching these real life interrogations and immediately was like, okay, there is a, a huge vicarious voyeuristic pull here. And obviously there's a slightly unseemly nature to that, but also it became apparent to me part of that was watching the very morally questionable trick of the homicide detective is to say to the person who's just done a terrible thing. And in a lot of these cases, they don't have someone to talk to in their life. 
There are, there are all sorts of things throughout their entire backstory that have boiled up and led to this moment. Mm-hmm. And the homicide detective sits down and says, I'm just here to listen. And for the first <laughs> time, there's someone that wants to listen. And so you watch these interrogations and the life story spools out and, and people are talking. And, and obviously, simultaneously, they're maybe consciously trying not to admit guilt or to say the bad thing. But obviously, everything else in their psychology is trying to say it. And it's all in the subtext. And... I'm like, this is such a heightened, interesting thing of like, literally these people are coming in and telling their life story as a piece of storytelling. This is fascinating to me. There's that Hannibal Lecter quality to it. He is telling you certain things that are maddening at the same time as he's trying to spin it around. One of the examples from one of the kind of actual training courses, they talk about there are adversarial people who are being interviewed. A lot of the discussion is around the fact in real life, very few people confess. It's not about getting the confession. It's about getting them to slip up in some other way. But they talk about the the hardest person to beat is the sociopath Mm. because they will answer questions. They will not block the interviewer and they will be charming with it. And and they reference the, the British serial killer, Harold Shipman, who apparently in his interviews, he appears to happily answer all their questions. And is, is very charming. So the, there was a point where I jumped out of my chair and got, I was like, yes, this is so cool. I had this one academic text that was about the use of laughter in police interviews and, and on both sides. Uh, like how would the detective use laughter as a way of diffusing things? And what does it mean if the subject's laughing? But what this study did at the start, because it was very academic, was like, let's define our terms. And they kind of broke down how one might categorize and kind of systematize a conversation and they introduced this concept which i would just fell in love with where they said in a situation where there is the suspect and there is the detective it is not actually a two-sided conversation there are three people in this conversation and they define this third participant the invisible participant who is actually driving the whole thing and the understanding is if i'm being interviewed by a cop and they're recording this thing i know that when this comes to trial they're going to play the tape back Ah. to the jury. So what the detective will do is he will phrase a question in such a way that he's almost leading towards an answer and he's framing it for the jury. And so then Mm. a person answering is also conscious that this could be used against them and they are also addressing themselves to the jury. So I'm reading this and I'm like, so there's this invisible third participant who's not directly interacting in the scene, but is the most important person. I'm like, oh shit, like this is the player. This is the yeah. audience, right? And, yeah. and oh, so the so that whole kind of situation became very interesting to me. And I think the arc of her story is did this woman murder her husband, right? It's like, oh, it's solved the crime or whatever. But then really once you're a ways in, then it becomes, well, why did this happen? What in this person's life led them to this? And then you start digging this reasonably extreme kind of gothic backstory, and, and then it becomes like in those examples I'd seen, like it becomes their life. Like what in the, what led this person to this act that has ended them up in this room? Isn't it the why and not so much the how that is where the emotion lies? Yeah, which is part of my, for her story, was me digging into the evolution of the detective story, which I always bring out when people will say modern culture sucks. Modern entertainment is, is, is stupid and we, we've dumbed down. I'll, I'll always bring this one out because you go back to the early detective stories, right? So you go back to the Agatha Christie originals and these are puzzle pieces and the detective character is usually a, a very thin stand-in 
They might have a few affectations. Oh, I'm from Belgium. I have a moustache. That's as much as you get of the character. But you're saying they're a stand-in for us as the viewer to figure it out? Is that what you're saying? Well, they serve several purposes. They're the person that walks around poking and asking questions. Uh, they're our translator, right? Yeah. And at the end of the story, they will then explain everything to us. In reading an Agatha Christie, there is the expectation, can you solve this? And usually, you can't because it was a clever puzzle. So Poirot or whoever will explain it to you. So that was like, you know, that's the original archetypal whodunit. It's a mystery. It's a puzzle. The story ends right at the point where it's all explained. The psychological depth is there, but it's not interrogated. And then the, the genre evolves to the how done it, which is the best version of this is Columbo. The start of an episode of Columbo, you see the murder. You know who did it. So it's not about solving that puzzle. And then immediately you cut to now Columbo shows up. He initially doesn't know who did it, maybe. But you do. And so instantly you have the extra sophistication of the dramatic irony of watching the murderer lie and the pressure of that and seeing Columbo, how is he going to figure this out? You know, sometimes the the how did they get away with it bit is obscured. So that's part of the puzzle that's trying to be solved. But it's instantly, like just from a psychological perspective, more interesting. Your role as the viewer is more layered because you have knowledge that other characters don't. So that gets really sophisticated and, and, you know, there are endless variations on that. Whether, you know, my favorite is uh, Diagnosis Murder, which was my guilty pleasure as, as a student at university, was watching that every day. And then you see towards the end of the century, it evolves to the why done it, which, as you say, is instantly, that's the much deeper question. And so, you know, a lot of like the Scandi Noir stuff was doing that. A lot of the serial killer movies were kind of doing that, where it's like, okay, let's treat the serial killer as the most screwed up version of a human brain and start to interrogate that. Um, and, you know, a lot of modern detective story will sometimes go through the motions with the tropes of the mystery. Sometimes it'll discard it entirely. Something like True Detective was interesting the first season, at least to me, because the two characters who had the most interesting psychology and who we were trying to crack were the detectives. Mm-hmm. The murder mystery there was kind of the, the MacGuffin. It was... Slightly disappointing that in the final episode, they clearly felt the need, we, well, we do need to actually solve this murder. And it was very random, pure, the butler did it. It was like, oh, yeah. there was this guy and he, and then they, they did double background to the two characters. But, you know, that was a great example of this framework of the crime story being used to actually go real deep into the extremes of, of kind of human behavior. Um, so you see that evolution and what I was intrigued to do with her story was create a structure where depending on on how you interacted with it and and some luck i guess in cases you could get all three versions of that structure oh you could play her story as a whodunit and crack it towards the end you could have the version where very quickly you understand what's happened and now you're immediately interrogating the why i guess depending on when you get your information by what you choose So are you familiar with Daniel Pink's definition between plot and story? Let's hear it. Well, it it probably may be familiar to a guy of your experience, but people are always confused by what that is because plot is facts in some way. So the the plot is the queen dies and then the king dies. Yep. And story is the queen dies and then the king dies of a broken heart. Yes, 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 yes. For the listener, why I'm saying that is that there is so much more once you have that emotional attachment that you've made that where that gets committed to a feeling and then that's sort of where the why lies it feels to me in 
what's the intent, not just the context of this happened and this happened and this happened. And I think uh, what's great in your nonlinear world is that you're able to use all of those elements to even deliver us the why and the emotions when we come to it. I don't think there's any two people that solve a puzzle the same way, mm -hmm. unless it's something that's really overly guided in the text. And so why do I click on something? What, what intrigues me about it? What do I think is the most important element? Do I move in close? Do I pull back? Do I think that person's guilty? Any good mystery novel, there's several possible suspects. And oftentimes, they'll trade back and forth. We all, oh, for sure, he did it. No, 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 wait, wait. This is why she did it. He loved her. And that's the, like, the, the tightrope, I think, increasingly hard in a linear setup to, like, if someone asked me, write a five-hour miniseries, crime miniseries, with, like, a big, exciting twist or reveal at the end, you are threading such a needle there because the audience has so much knowledge, has seen all of the classic twists. When Agatha Christie was writing their stuff, they were inventing twists that people had never seen before. Now everyone has riffed on it and then riffed on the riff of it. it to some extent, it's a useful tool for me to be able to step back and hand things back to the audience. Yeah. I would think that once people have gone, is there a twin? Was there a baby born? We didn't know. There are certain things where you really do have to get pretty far away from the truth in order to find folks. But before we depart, I want to be sure that I send people where they can find the games. I know Immortality the interactive movie trilogy there is available on Steam and Windows PC. Netflix Games now has it too, which is an amazing new advancement, isn't it? Yeah, it's cool. Not to have a huge digression on the video games business, but like when her story came out, a huge impetus to me being like, I'm going to give up my salary job working for this big game developer and go it on my own was the explosion in phones and the app store. It was like, oh, everybody has one of these things. And if I can put a game on there, everyone will have access. And not just everybody, but a broader selection of human beings versus who has the big expensive new Xbox in their living room. And, and her story, a big part of the success and where it broke through to the mainstream came from that, was people going, hey, to their partner, parent, colleague, check this out. Installing it on their phone, people go off and play it. In the years since then, the evil forces of capitalism have conspired to ruin phone gaming. Once they realized that on a phone, which is connected to your credit card, they could give you a game for free and then ask you to pay 90 cents to get extra golden coins that they could make infinite money this way. It very quickly kind of tanked the ability to make things like Her Story on there. So the, the excitement and, and obviously especially in the current climate, the various labor disputes, the Netflix in some cases is painted as the villain. In this situation, we're very hopeful. Like, can, can someone step in and go, no, no, no. we're going to let you have access to the quality, the pieces that take their time, that need room to breathe, that are trying to tell you a, a true and authentic human story. They're not fruit machines that are trying to empty your pockets. They're coming in with their completely different business model of going, well, we already have subscribers. We don't need to rinse them for bags of golden coins or whatever. Because right. we weren't even sure if immortality would come to phones because of, of the logistics of that business now. But then Netflix showed up and there was obviously some synergy there. So Yeah. And if you're not a gamer, and there are some out there that are not, I will still say that the documentary, the making of 
the immortality that I watched on YouTube was uh, astounding to listen to the actors and the designers and all of your partners. It really speaks to you, not just as a game creator or a director, but your name, Sam Barlow, to me, is like a 50s private eye name that you have created the Sam Barlow Detective Agency, and now all of them in the documentary are revealing some of your tricks of the trade, which I found to be really interesting. And if they want to see all of the games at their fingertips, they can find that at halfmermaid.co. That's the website, I think, where I saw all the games listed. So thank you, Sam, for sharing the insights and Uh, Congratulations on this. I won't be somebody that says what's next because I know that's a a longer answer than we have time for. (laughs) You're one to watch. I will say that. It was really, really interesting to talk to you. Thanks, man. This was a fun conversation. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring